I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, I'll be preaching this morning on the subject, Christ first coming in relation to sin. And God willing, this evening, coming back to the same passage, Christ first coming in relation to the devil. For sin and the devil are related together, aren't they? And the coming of Christ the first time has something to do with those two things, sin and the devil. Um, my text is found in chapter 3 of 1 John, verses 4 through 9. We'll look at verses 4, 5, and 6 this morning, and God willing, verses 7, 8, and 9 this evening. Follow with me in your Bibles as I read these six verses. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Everyone, or, or verse 5 now, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In the first three verses of this chapter, the Apostle John wrote about the second coming of Christ, and he challenged believers to live a holy and godly life in light of his return. But now in verses 4 to 9, he speaks about the first coming of Christ. And he zeroes in on the purpose for his coming. And he connects that together with the necessity of holiness. Here he argues for the indispensable necessity of holy, godly, righteous living. And he links that to the purpose of Christ's first coming, first coming, which he says in verse 5 was to take away sins. And in verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. John makes his case here in two parallel passages. Verses 4 to 6 is the first, verses 7 to 9 is the second. But he essentially makes the same argument in both passages, but does so with some distinctions. You notice that in both sections, he describes the nature of sin. In the first section, he defines sin as lawlessness. And in the second section, he associates sin with the devil. In both sections, he explains why Jesus came the first time. In verse 5, he says Jesus came to take away our sins. In verse 8, he says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And in both sections, he puts in plain words the logical conclusion of the first advent. In verse 6, he says that whoever abides in him does not keep on sinning. And in verse 9, he says that no one who is born of God will continue to live in sin. 
in these six verses, you see how central this subject of sin is and what a serious matter it is. Ten times in these six verses, John speaks about sin. And not the first time he did so in this epistle. You go back to chapter 1, chapter 2 as well. But here in this chapter, he is turning up the volume. And he is showing how utterly incompatible and irreconcilable sin is with Christianity. And he makes this point, he drives this point home that anyone who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ but continues to live in sin is making a complete contradiction to the whole purpose of Christ coming to the earth because he came to save us, not in our sins, but from our sins. So this morning we're going to see that John answers three vital questions. First, what is sin? That's verse 4. Second, what does Christ's coming have to do with sin? That's verse 5. And then third, what difference does the presence of sin make in our lives? And that's verse 6. So we begin with the question, what is sin? And 1 John 3 verse 4 gives what is probably the best overall definition of sin that's found in the Bible. And he plainly says, doesn't he, sin is lawlessness. But look at the entire verse. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then comes the definition, sin is lawlessness. Now he begins with this general statement, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Now here he's talking about the unconverted man. And I'll show you later that's what he has in mind. But we know that all of us are sinners. Now Paul in Romans chapter 3, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's universal truth. All men everywhere are sinners. Romans 5, verse 12, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam, our federal head, and when he fell, we fell. And because we are in him, we are regarded as sinners. Are we sinners by nature? Yes. But he's speaking about original sin in that passage. And so there are no exceptions to this universal principle. You are a sinner. And I am a sinner. We are all sinners. All people, not just some, are guilty, vile, wretched sinners in the sight of God. The best people in the human race are sinners. We often focus on the worst among us. 
but even the best are sinners. There's no elite group in the race of man that can claim sinlessness. Well, after starting with this universal, all-inclusive term, everyone, you notice that John proceeds to the act of sinning. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you see that the translation is very different here. The King James, New King James translate, translates this part of the verse poorly. It says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And that translation is misleading for it suggests a point of action rather than a continuing practice. And what John, John is pointing out is sin as a continuing practice. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, habitually sinning, always sinning, living in sin, abiding in sin. Literally, John says something like this, everyone doing sin also does lawlessness. And in the context, what he's writing about are those who continually habitually practice sin. He did the same back in chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, instead of practicing sinning, living in sinning, it's practicing righteousness. And the one who practices righteousness, lives a righteous life, is evidently shown to be uh, someone who's a Christian, a true believer. And so what John is portraying in chapter 3 is someone who is always engaged, characteristically engaged in the life, in a life of sin. And that is very important for us if we're to understand this chapter, especially verse 6 and verse uh, 9. Verse 6 in the King James Version says, whoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth has not seen him, neither has known him. Verse 9, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. The idea is he cannot continue to practice and live in sin. Not that he can't still sin. Well, let's observe how John defines sin. He defines it as lawlessness. The Bible gives us several definitions of sin. Proverbs 24, 9, the thought of foolishness is sin. Romans 14, 23, whoever is not of faith, uh, whatever is not of faith is sin. James 4, 7, to him that knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. 1 John 5, 17, all unrighteousness is sin. You surely know the shorter catechism very well, and it gives an excellent answer to the question, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of 
the law of God. That's a good broad definition that fits the whole of Scripture. Sin is omitting to do what we're supposed to do, and it's doing what we're not supposed to do. Omission, commission. It combines the two. The Bi- that, and that captures what the whole of the Bible teaches. But John here is focusing on one thing, and that is sin as lawlessness. Now note the two words, sin, lawlessness. The word sin means a missing or falling short of the mark. It was used in those days of a warrior who missed striking his opponent, like with an arrow, or taking a swing at him. He missed him. Or it was used of a traveler who went the wrong way. He didn't take the right path. Well, that's what sin is. But John adds the idea that sin is more than just missing a mark. It is a deliberate deviation from what is right. It is lawlessness. Sin is willful rebellion, which arises out of the heart. So what is sin? It's outright rebellion against God and His law. Sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is lawlessness. It is open defiance of God. Well, what is lawlessness? It's not the absence of the law. It is the willful rejection of the law. So it's not just that sin manifests itself in disregard for God's law, but it's by its very nature. Sin is lawlessness. And so it is a willful action. And here he is speaking of it as an habitual action, not just a one-act thing. But we live in sin. We practice sin. So in calling sin lawlessness, John is not simply describing the result of sin, but speaking of the essence of sin. James Montgomery Boyce points that out. He says, John does not say that sin is merely the breaking of a divinely revealed law. Rather, he indicates that sin is the spirit of lawlessness itself, which lies behind the rebellion. So sin is lawlessness, and lawlessness is the attitude that causes us to transgress the law, not just the transgression of the law itself. And the spirit of lawlessness is found in all of us. It's found in the youngest child. It's found in the teenager, the middle-aged man. It's found in the old woman. It's found in all of us. Lawlessness characterizes every person apart from the transformation of the grace of God in saving us from our sins. Well, after telling his readers what sin is, John then tells them what Christ's coming has to do with sin. Why did Christ come 
to the earth. Verse 5 tells us he came to take away sins. The received text has an additional word there. He came to take away our sins. But John is saying, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Note first of all here how John appeals to the knowledge of his readers. You know. If you know anything about 1 John, you know how often he uses that word know. You know. We know. Over and over again. Well, what they knew here, he says, is the reason for Christ coming. They knew why he was manifested. They knew why he appeared on earth. Why did he come? To take away sins. Now here, John does not say that Christ was born. He says he appeared. That's a word that means to make visible. And in using this word of Christ's first coming, John is implying our Lord's pre-existence before His incarnate appearance on earth. Well, why did He appear? Why did He come? Why was He born? What did He come to do? He came to take away our sins. These words of John in this epistle remind us of words he wrote in his gospel. Chapter 1. He told us about John the Baptist who came preaching in the wilderness and he records in John 1 verse 29 something that John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. This verb translated take away means to remove, to take up, carry it away. Now, John doesn't tell us here how Christ takes away our sin. He just tells us He takes it away. But He tells us in other places how He takes away our sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. That big word propitiation means the sacrifice of Jesus in His death removes the wrath of God from us. So He's the propitiation for our sins. Our sins required Him to make that sacrifice which would turn back the just wrath of God which was upon us. Chapter 4, verse 10, He makes that point again using that same word propitiation again. So it is by the substitutionary and propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that our sins are removed. Dying for our sins was the means whereby He took away our sins. 
So it is by his death that our sins are effectively removed. Hear how clearly the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26. He has appeared, using the same word that John does. He has appeared, Christ has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That same truth is embedded in that great prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53, where he speaks of Messiah to come. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We did esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He goes on to say he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. For our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And why? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, John mentions one more thing in connection with the coming of Christ to remove, to take away our sins. Note how he inserts the words, and in him is no sin. That's most fitting to have here. Why? Because the taking away of sin cannot be accomplished by one who himself is a sinner. Jesus Christ, who bore in his own body our sins, for that sacrifice to be accepted by the Father, must be sinless himself. And this is one of the clear teachings of the Bible, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5.21, I know people who regard that as the greatest verse in the Bible. For He, God the Father, hath made Him, that's God the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Hebrews 4.15 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, where the apostle spoke of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish, and then later in chapter 2, he says he committed no sin. And then in chapter 3, he says Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, the righteous one for the unrighteous. So if his sacrifice is to atone for sin, he must be without spot and blemish. So our salvation was made possible by the fact that he who was sinless and 
did not need to die because of his own sins, for he had none, offered himself for us and died in our place, the just for the unjust. Oh, that's the gospel, dear friends. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He rose the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, John writes in him, there is no sin. Uses the present tense here, which would indicate to us that sinlessness is an eternal part of Christ's nature. He's sinless, past, present, and future. This fact of sinlessness is essential to his personhood. He always has been, he is, and he always will be without sin. Christ was sinless because he didn't possess a sin nature. Now, he was fully man. He had a mother. But he was conceived in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is how he remained sinless. The Spirit of God entered the virgin womb of a maiden by the name of Mary, and the body of the Son of God was conceived. Oh, how beautifully and reverently that event is described by Luke in Luke chapter 1. Would you turn to that passage and follow with me as I read those beautiful and glorious verses? Luke chapter 1, verse 36. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? Gabriel came to visit her. Gabriel told her that she had found favor with God, that she was going to conceive in her womb and bear a son. Even told her you're going to call his name Jesus. Told her that he's going to be great and be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. But she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel explained it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child uh, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Oh, the miraculous conception. We speak of the virgin birth and we should continue to do that, but it's not so much the birth that was the miracle. It was the conception. And do you see how vitally important that is? How else could his sinlessness be ensured? It was vital that he be, be sinless in order for him to do what was necessary to save sinners. The manner of his conception then ensured his sinfulness, sinlessness rather, 
Had a man been his father, he would not have been sinless. Had a man been his father, he would have had Adam's nature. So what a marvelous plan of redemption this is. Jesus must become a man in order to lay down his life as a sacrifice for man. But he must be without sin if that sacrifice is to be accepted. And he was without sin because he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Oh, blessed gospel where Jesus takes away our sin by dying in our place. We often think of John 3.16. Well, 1 John 3.16 says, He laid down His life for us. His death was a ransom for our sins. It was a payment, the exact equivalent of what we owed. He became our substitute. He represented us and He paid the ultimate price. He shed His blood as an atoning sacrifice that we might be forgiven. Because He remained sinless, the Father accepted His sacrifice that was offered on our behalf. Because He was sinless, He vindicated the divine law by His perfect life. And because He was sinless, He could suffer the penalty of sin in His death. The lambs that were offered in the Old Testament were without spot and blemish. And the Lamb of God offered up on the cross the sacrifice which ended all sacrifices was without blemish. For He was perfect. He was sinless. Well, John's answered the question, what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. He's answered the question, why did Christ come? And he says Christ appeared in order to take away our sins. And now there's one last question he answers. What difference does the presence of sin make in our lives? Well, it makes a great deal of difference, doesn't it? Because the sinless Son of God died in order to take away our sins, then the one who follows Him must oppose sin with all his might, must walk in holiness, for he desires to be like the one who saved him from his sins. Note verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either known, seen him or known him. John is here contrasting a Christian with a non-Christian. The Christian is someone who abides or lives in Christ, and therefore he doesn't keep on sinning. The non-Christian, on the other hand, continues in sin and has neither seen nor known Christ. Let's take a close look at these two groups. Let's look first at what he says about the Christian. John describes a Christian as abiding in Christ. And because he's in Christ, attached to Christ, the vine, and he abides in Him, he does not continue in sin. 
abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, living in Christ, reflects a close, intimate relationship with Christ. But John also says that the one who abides or lives in him does not keep on sinning. The person who continues to live in sin and to practice lawlessness isn't a Christian. A Christian does not and cannot continue in sin. Doesn't mean he never sins, but sin is not the practice of his life. He doesn't live in it. He doesn't wallow in it. He's been saved from it. The power of sin. The Holy Spirit indwells him and changes his character, transforms his life without making him perfect. There's no perfectionism this side of heaven. But we will not see the Lord without holiness. Holiness is a mark that we are truly Christians. The person who is a genuine Christian, distinguishing him from someone who says he is, but has no marks of the Christian life, does not continue in willful, habitual sin. A relation of mine posted something on Facebook yesterday. He's grown up in an easy believism church. And he thinks because he has made a profession of faith that all is well with him. But there's been no change in his life at all. And he acknowledges in his Facebook post, I cuss people on the road. I sometimes watch porn. I drink too much. I can be loud and agnostic sometimes. I lose my temper more than I should. That's just to name a few of my many flaws and sins. And then he refers to Jesus as his Lord and Savior and pleads that he will never be perfect, will never be without sin. That part is true. But there's been no real difference in his life from the day he professed Jesus Christ to be his Savior. And that's why he keeps doing all those things he mentioned. Can a Christian fall into sin? He certainly can. And what will God do to him? Chasten him. Deal with him to bring him back. Look at Peter, who denied the Lord. But Peter, I have prayed for you. World of difference between Peter and Judas, wasn't there? Both walked in the company of Christ. but One was a genuine believer with many faults. The other was never a believer and habitually lived in his sin, eventually betraying the Lord Jesus. If you've never made a break with sin, if there's never been repentance, the cry of the heart, I'm a guilty, vile sinner, Forgive me, O oh God. You're not a Christian. Too many people 
want a little fire insurance from hell, and so they say, I believe in Jesus. But they never bow that knee to Him as Lord. And their conversion is not real and true. True believers do not and cannot continually live in sin. That's what John is teaching here. Look back at chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. So we're not saying we are perfect with no sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we are found, we are still sinners. We have the remaining effects of sin in us. And mortification is the work of the Spirit helping us to put to death the deeds of the body, the sin that remains in us. But if that work of progressive sanctification isn't going on, there's no salvation. And that's what John is saying here. No, we often have to confess our sins, don't we? That's verse 9 of chapter 1, 1 John. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have to do that every day. We don't want to sin. He's changed our hearts. He's given us a new life. But we don't make our home in sin. That's because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And so we live in daily conflict with sin. You know, Paul describes that tension in Romans 7. Galatians 5, there's that tug of war that goes on. But a believer is no longer in the grip of sin, for his life is controlled by Jesus Christ. Well, that's what he has to say about a Christian. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now let's look at how he describes the non-Christian. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And what John is describing here are people characterized by the practice of sin. Sin is the ruling principle of their lives. And he continues in sin because his life is not in Christ. The way he lives demonstrates that he has no fellowship with Jesus Christ. So those who habitually, continually practice sin, John says, have never seen him or known him. And so that means their faith, so-called, is spurious that they did not have an intimate relation with Jesus Christ. Faith sees Christ. It looks to Christ. Look upon me and be ye saved. Look is one of those metaphors for what faith is. You look to Christ. You believe in Christ. You look to Him. You see Him. And you know Him. There is a personal relationship with Him. That's the 
spiritual vision of faith. There's this acquaintance, intimate acquaintance, acquaintance of knowledge of Him. Well, what a stark difference there is between these two. What a contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. The, the unbeliever lives a life of habitual sin. He's not seen Christ. He doesn't know Christ. He doesn't have a saving relationship with Christ, though he may say he does. But the believer abides in Christ. He lives a life marked by habitual righteousness and purity instead of lawlessness and rebellion and disobedience. And because he is in Christ, he has ceased this life of sin and seeks to abide in Christ and walk in the Spirit because the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in bringing him to faith has caused him to experience this decisive break with sin. And sin no longer controls his life. And this tells us that there's more to the death of Christ than simply our salvation from hell. Sin, or salvation rather, breaks the power of sin. You see, Christ not only died for us, doesn't the Scripture teach we died with Him? Galatians 2, Romans 6. And because that is true, sin no longer has dominion over us. Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How seriously do we take sin? Too many people explain sin away as a minor insignificant shortcoming. They're not bothered by sin. They say, I've got a life insurance policy. I'm going to heaven because I once said, Jesus, save me. And there's no evidence in the life that follows that the person is saved. Look with me at a passage real quick. Um, Matthew chapter 7. This comes at the end of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And it's a very important passage, I think, in connection with what we've been learning from John this morning in his first epistle. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That means you can profess that Jesus is Lord, but you not go to heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And does that mean we, we're saved? We go to heaven because we do the will of the Father? No. Doing the will of the Father is the indication that our faith in Jesus is real and true. It's not salvation by works. Justified by faith alone, Christ alone. 
but those who've been justified by faith alone prove their faith is genuine to themselves and to others by the fruit of their lives. Jesus went on to say, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they begin to name all the things we did. We prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name. We did mighty works in your names. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And then notice the next words, verse 23. Depart from me, you workers of what? Lawlessness. Same word John used. Sin is lawlessness. Total disregard for the law of God. Continue to transgress the law of God. If you go up earlier, a few verses back, verse 15, 16 in this chapter, you will know them by their fruits, Jesus said. I, I'm not anyone's judge. I can't say to someone dogmatically that you are not a Christian because I can't read their hearts. But we can look at the fruit, can't we? And Jesus said, you will know them, you will recognize them by their fruits. When I was a teenager, there was a popular song that said, you can't grow cherries on a... What tree was that? can't grow peaches on a cherry tree was the song and if you say you're a cherry tree you're a christian but you're growing peaches it's not the same is it and that is all that john is trying to tell us so dear friends sin is a serious offense against god it is a direct affront to God. It shows our alienation, our enmity. It shows we deserve His wrath. And there's only one way that we can find forgiveness of our sins. And John tells us what that reason is. Christ appeared to take away our sins. That's why He came into the world. That's why He became a man. Christ Jesus came into the world to save people like you and me. And He was given the name Jesus at His birth because it signifies that He came to save His people from their sins it is only through faith in the lamb of god who bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we can be saved from our sins and when he saves us he replaces our love for sinning with a deep abiding love for him Father, we thank you for your word. We know verses like these that John wrote on the inspiration of the Spirit are not particularly liked well by many people, even in churches today, because they want to excuse that deliberate, open, continuing to live in sin kind of life. 
Lord, we thank you, though, that the word of God is clear. That whoever abides in Jesus Christ will practice righteousness. If we abide in him, we can't keep on living in a life of habitual sin. And if we are living that life where we just keep on sinning, then you tell us we've never seen him or known him. So help us to see that the purpose of Christ's coming was to save us from our sins. He appeared to take away our sins. But in taking away our sins, he took away our love for sinning and replaced it with a love for him. And may we find that true in our lives. Everyone who's a Christian is going to bring fruit. Now, some are going to bring forth more than others. Some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. But we know where the Word of God has been planted and it's borne fruit and the Spirit of God has done a mighty work and brought us to cast ourselves in faith upon Jesus that we've received a new life. Any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So help us to do this day what the Word of God often bids us to do, to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And I pray that you will bless this Word to all of us this day, that we may heed it, that we may receive it, that we may abide in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.